I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell. And you are listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. This week on Pop It, we're on site at Webster 5 Bank on floor 19 of 100 Front Street. It's beautiful. It is. With Vice President Monica Thomas-Bonnick. Monica brings over 20 years of experience in providing financing solutions to both for-profit and non-profit businesses, including startups, women-owned businesses, and franchises. Her career trajectory has taken her from the role of CFO in the nonprofit sector to landing her a spot on Crane's New York business 40 under 40 list. Monica is in the business of earning trust and building relationships. Thank you for having us. Yes. My pleasure. It's a little different for us. I like it. Yeah. We talked to a lot of the, like, the woman business owners, Mm -hmm. but not sort of the, like, we don't get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of, like, how do they get there? How do they finance (laughs) themselves? So this is a good good spot yeah and there is a strong contingent of female entrepreneurs in the city right now who are kind of shaping the conversation so we're coming at it from all angles yes awesome uh one project that i'm working on i'm a trustee for the worcester public library foundation and we've been trying to launch a little bit of a social media presence they didn't have an instagram account so we've been posting pictures of people and their favorite children's books and it's funny how much their favorite children's book kind of correlates with the path that they took but i wanted to start by just asking you if there was a children's book that really impacted you growing up there were actually two children's books that i think had an impact on my life, and they are The Little Prince and The Velveteen Rabbit. Oh, yes. <laughs> Good answers. Were there any particular ties that you have to them? In The Little Prince, the quote that says, it is only with the heart that one can see clearly what is essential is invisible to the eye, has been like a guiding mantra for me to kind of look at people in situations with the heart versus what I see visually on the outside. And to remember that oftentimes what you see externally does not reflect the truth. We're both school teachers, so I cannot stress that point enough. There's so much going on often that you can't see when you're just looking at a kid sitting in front of you. Yeah, and it's compassion and empathy and... Yeah, absolutely. I love um, his relationship to the fox. Yes. And when they've tamed each other. I love that. That's my my very favorite. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yep. And then the uh, Velveteen Rabbit about people with sharp edges and the way the kid loves off all the fur off the rabbit. And so, you know, that's a correlation with how we interact with each other and how, you know, sometimes you just have to be vulnerable and be real, so. I can't agree more. So how did you end up in finance? Little bit by default. I was a pre-med major, Um, took organic chemistry, did not get an A. I freaked out, thought I wouldn't get in the medical school of my choice. And so I called my parents and told them I was finished with college. And my mom let me rant and rave for about five minutes. She said, take a deep breath. You will complete your college education. We'll give you an extra year, figure out what you're going to major in. And I had taken electives in the business school. And I like math and science. So it seemed to be a good fit. 
and I could get out in an extra year. So kind of by default. That's kind of how I ended up there. And then, you know, from that, it took me to Girl Scouts and I tried it out on them <laughs> and realized that I really liked it. And there were some similarities between doing finance and being a physician. And so kind of has led me on this professional path to sort of work with the groups that I choose to work with and do financial literacy. So I'm not doing medical healing, but now I'm sort of using that same skill set to help people heal and have access financially. What was your initial connection to Girl Scouts? I grew up as a Girl Scout and then um, really loved going to the camp in the summer because I got to do all these really cool things like climb trails in the White Mountains, do bike trips across New England, just do a lot of fun stuff. And so um, when I went off to college, it was a way for me to earn spending money because that was my deal with my folks. I had to earn my spending money during the summer. They paid everything else. And so I could go to camp, have fun, make money. And um, just kind of by being there and progressing through their leadership ranks of working at camp and then becoming CIT director, they allowed me the opportunity to be the CFO, unbeknownst to me. So they approached me and I said, sure. Wow. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how doing something fun ended up being <laughs> yeah. a career for me. I also grew up as a camp girl, and it's such a microcosm, I think, yeah. for <laughs> the professional world. So when I became a first-year teacher, I remember my principal said, I can't believe this is your first year doing this. you know. And I said, I thought, well, well I kind of been doing it since I was 14 or something in some capacity. Yep, there's yeah. definitely a correlation. Yeah. Absolutely. What a, and what a great track for Girl Scouts to have that opportunity for advancement, right? Yep. Where you can And they see your skill set and they know what you are good at. And they're like, hey, like, we want you to take on this role now. That's very cool. Did you have a mentor during that time period? I did. Um, first, my first mentor was the director of the camp. I'll never forget Nance. She was she was awesome. And um, she also was a full-time staff member during the year at camp as the outdoor education director. And so um, she mentored me through the different positions through my career at summer camp. And then once I took the full-time position as CFO, the executive director of the organization became my mentor and kind of helped me navigate through because I was really young when I took that position. I think I was 21, maybe 20, yeah, 21. And um, I had people working for me who were like in their mid 40s and stuff. So to be a part of a management team and to do what I got to do at such a young age, she was just instrumental to helping me navigate through that. And you went on to work for Santander. Molly had to teach me how to pronounce <laughs> Santander. That one I was like Santander, and she's like, no, Santander. Oh, a lot of New Englanders say that. Uh, and J.P. Morgan Chase, and now you're at a community bank like Webster Five. What is the difference? There's, I think there's more similarities than difference in that we offer the same products and services. It's the way we go about it. And so when I worked at Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase and Santander, you know, you sort of know the parameters 
of what's a good deal, what's not a good deal, kind of what their appetite is for certain things. And then when you transition to a community bank, you don't really have those parameters anymore. So initially it was a challenge for me to kind of figure out what I could offer to clients because at B of A, I knew if it met the criteria for cash flow, for leverage, certain things, it was a viable deal. Here I got, it depends. So I'm coming to realize after about 18 months that it depends is a really good thing because it allows you to look at each deal on its merit and sort of figure out if what the customer needs and the structure you're proposing is a win-win for both parties. So, um, you know, it's just community banking really is about relationship. We say it's relationship in the big bank. For some of us, that's true. For others, maybe not so much. But um, it's relationship focused. And you can do transactions here that you couldn't do at the big bank owner occupied home builder deals. We couldn't do those on, you know, on the regular line. You had to do a special, be in a specialty group to do some of those transactions. So it sounds like, too, in this position, you're almost like refining your skill set, right? Where before, you, you were saying, like, if it met certain criteria, you could sort of just go with it. Where here, you really need to sharpen your own, your own eye, right? And make sure that you know what's what. Pretty much. I mean, uh, some of the roles I had early on at Bank of America sort of had the same skill set here because I worked in a division called First Community Bank, which was a bank within a bank. Model in which we focused on inner city businesses and businesses that were in underserved areas. And so that translates over to what I'm doing now here in Central Mass. But it does force me to figure out, really hone in on this is what's important about this transaction and this is why we need to do this or this is why I need to advocate for us to do this piece of business. We talk on this podcast a lot about women working in male-dominated fields, and um, I met you actually at a panel for International Women's Day where you were talking about the boardroom gap, the gender gap, and we had all read this article by Grant Welker that was part of Worcester Business Journal's boardroom gap series, and they kept returning to Worcester Business Journal analyzed pay for 229 central mass public company higher education, healthcare, finance, and social service nonprofit executives, finding when men made a median of $416,082 compared to $220,461 for women. And I wanted to hear about your initial reaction to this difference in the median between men and women who are working in the executive space, and what should we do as women moving forward? I guess my reaction was sadness that there's still a divide. Um, I was not surprised. It's still disappointing. I mean, it's 2019 and we still aren't being compensated for what we bring. And so as females in male-dominated industries or any industry, I think it's high time that we begin to ask for what we're worth and not settle for less. And so it requires something of us in that 
we have to do our due diligence. We need to know what the market rate is for whatever position it we're in in a particular market. And then we need to know what different levels within that um, position, what they pay, and then sort of put ourselves up against that. And then say, you know, I'd really love to work for you. This is what I bring for the table, but this is what it costs. And don't back down. And if they're not willing to pay you for it, then you know what? You're going to have to make some hard choices and not just take what they're willing to give us, but demand what we we need to be paid. I mean, guys do it. Why don't we? And there's a way to do it. You know, we have to be, we can be assertive, but nice about it, but just say no. And the fact that you don't, you know, guys get paid more because they have families and they have all of these things that society says that they have to take care of. Well, we shouldn't be penalized for that, nor should they be compensated more because they have that. It should be, if you have the same skill set, you, you demand the same pay, male or female regardless of what your gender is yeah i think that for a lot of women too it's we don't realize right and it, and some of it comes from educating each other like you need to like talking about it too and i think we discussed this a little bit on the podcast from a couple weeks ago it would be right yeah with um, stacy luster from worcester state talk about we need to talk to each other about it because i think that's a big part of it is we insulate ourselves and we think it's uncouth to discuss money and finance and and we need to educate each other. We might have a friend who says, like, I want to go for this job, but I'm not sure because of whatever reason, maybe financial. And it's like making sure that we are all sort of in it together and have each other's backs and say, like, no, you need to demand this. It's funny, too. I met with the Center for Women in Enterprise recently, and I do I work off seven 1099s. I have like all this yep. stuff going on yeah. and it all just sort of happened at once where I've got a million <laughs> projects and I'm freelancing. And I said to her, I don't know what to do with this. Do I make an LLC? Do I? She said, the first thing is a business plan. And I want you to call a bunch of other people who are doing all the things you're doing and get quotes. And she said, you need to figure out what other people are asking for. Cause I go, she goes, how'd you figure out what your like per word prices when you do a freelance piece? And I said, I don't know. I try to <laughs> Google it, but like not a lot of people are very public about about it she said call and ask other writers for quotes and then tell them you went another direction (laughs) but you've got to leverage those people who are doing what you do and like you said we need to be more upfront with one another about it and ask and be willing to share that information because in my opinion that's the only way that we're going to shrink that wage gap and that reminds me to Worcester Business Journal at this point is you know, the publication that pushed my standards because they pay me more per word than anyone else in the city. And that kind of got me thinking. But also, you know, they've got um, a male editor over there, Brad Kane, who is on that panel. And then Grant Welker is a man who is the investigative reporter that wrote this Boardroom Gap series. What can men do when they're faced with this information? And what should they do? What's their responsibility? I think that... When they are in positions to hire people, when they are offering or interested in a female candidate, I think that they have to begin to offer that female candidate the same parity that they're offering that male. 
I think that's the simplest thing because then they begin to turn the tide. And then once you have the information, I think that you become responsible for having maybe difficult con conversations with your male counterparts and saying that we need to do better. These are our daughters, our granddaughters, our wives. So how do you approach difficult conversations, not just when it comes to negotiating a salary, but also in the workplace? Mindfully. Um, <laughs> in that you, you have to, re I approach it from a vantage point of, I have to give it some thought and sort of figure out what is the outcome that I want or the outcome that's needed and then structure the conversation around that. And I think that I approach them head on in that I don't avoid having them, that I feel like they're necessary because it's good for me as well as whoever I need to have the conversation with around whatever topic it is. And I think we both grow as a result of having those uncomfortable conversations. I mean, nobody likes them, but I think they're necessary. Um, I would almost compare that to like when we work out, right? Like we exercise, our muscles are sore, but that's because they're rebuilding, right? It's, yeah. it's what comes from that, like not damage necessarily, but what comes from the, the difficulty of that and sort of maybe adversity in a conversation like that and then how do you grow from it? Definitely. <laughs> I had a difficult conversation last night and I was partly proud of myself, but then I lay in bed all night being <laughs> horrified, being like replaying it over and over and over. And sometimes I just can't get out of my own way. But it was about a board I'm on, there's a meeting coming up. And I said, okay, I'll see you guys Tuesday uh, to two of the male board members. And they said, you were invited to that meeting? And so I stopped and I said, excuse me, I understand that we all play different roles in this big project we're working on, but it's really important that you make everyone feel welcome. And they both were like kind of taken aback and then they both apologized. But I was so proud of myself. And then I also was like, did I do the right thing? Yes. And I started questioning myself. When you have self-doubt or feelings of imposter syndrome, what do you do for self-care and to build your own confidence? Usually the first thing I do is call people I trust, my mom and a couple of my closest friend, girlfriends, and say, this is a scenario, this is what happened, feedback. And they weigh in. And if they weigh in and say, you know, they won't tell me what I want to hear. They'll tell me if I'm wrong or no, you probably could have done it better or whatever the feedback is. It sort of like settles me and grounds me. And then I, I don't have self-doubt often. So when I do, I kind of have to really check it because it's like, oh my, what, what's the source of this? Why am I feeling like this? And then, you know, I get comfortable with it and say, I'm feeling this way because I probably stepped out and did something that I ordinarily wouldn't do, or I pushed it a little further than I typically would have. And it usually comes from the reaction of the individual on the receiving end. 
because my goal is never to hurt someone, to push their limits, yes, to make them grow, yeah, but to cause them undue strife, dis- yeah. Yeah. not the outcome that I want. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of assess, I have to assess, assess that and then sort of reflect back on myself to ask, why am I feeling this way? I'm always thinking, Sarah, did you slip into like Miss Connell mode? Because once in a while, <laughs> like when you yeah. gotta, you have to make kids understand that they've said something offensive or inappropriate. Mm-hmm. I have this like expression that I call my teacher face. <laughs> yes. And if I ever feel myself doing it with another adult, I'm like, whoa, turn that off. But I've seen it. Yeah. I mean, not directed towards <laughs> me, not directed at me, but. I like it. I just get excited. <laughs> and sometimes I would assume that that's difficult because I can I can understand that sitting in meetings and I'm talking to myself. Please do not let that come out on your face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like smile, breathe, whatever it takes, but yeah. don't let them see that. That's a serious one for me, reading <laughs> it on my face. And I think it's a blessing and a curse because sometimes people know that they've mm. overstepped or that you're not pleased and they'll ask a follow up. But like, if it's, that important that I'm wearing my emotions on my sleeve, I need to speak up. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good indicator. And I think, I mean, I think that's just something, I think that's something for women too, though. Like, I don't think that men are sitting thinking like, I hope I'm, my, I'm not showing this on my face, right? Or that I don't look too emotional. I think that that's something that we encounter in particular because we'll be accused of being unapproachable or angry or right. whiny or, you know, whatever, too emotional, period. So... Definitely. Don't I think worry it's gender about it. specific. And <laughs> yeah. I think women ask that question. And I know you we ask it more if we're in traditionally male dominated fields because the impact of that can be negative. Now I'm curious about your work with Edward Street Child Services. I saw that on your bio and I have never heard of it. Okay, Edward Street Child Services is a not-for-profit here in Worcester. And basically what they do as an organization is to empower families and communities to provide quality child care to, from birth to the age of three. And so they pretty much advocate and work with constituents throughout the city, the region and in the Commonwealth to sort of prioritize early childhood education and to see it as a viable field to understand how the brain works so that we can start to address things between birth and three so that we're not dealing with them in middle school and high school and adults who have all of these ACEs that are impacting the quality of their life. Like I said, they, they work with schools, work with social service agencies. Um, we advocate on the Hill, I'll call it the Hill, in Boston with legislatures to get them to put financing in early childhood and work to get... Um, higher education for people in the field. We, we advocate for earnings that are livable, wages that are livable for people, and try to f- tackle how do we retain quality people in a field where you c- can't make enough 
to live on and it's better to go work at McDonald's or your part-time job because you can obtain a living wage. And it's, I mean, and it's not an easy job either. Oh no. Right. I, uh, no. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. I admire people who do early childhood, early teach school. I, I, I give you all credit because <laughs> it's not the job that it used to be. It requires so much more. And it sounds like it's twofold too, where it's it's coming into that like the early childhood, early intervention stage, but also for the parents, it seems like it must be so um, fruitful, right? And for them to to be able to pull from that whatever they need to to deal with their child, but also giving them the accessibility to be working and head out into the the workforce or whatever they need to do. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, this whole area is a challenge that everyone's trying to figure out. Where do we go? What do we do? It's costly for, you know, childcare. It's yeah. not babysitting. You know, people think of early childhood as babysitting. No, it's so much more. Yeah. And what they do impacts your child's development. Now, as an executive, you must be asked all the time to be on boards and serve on committees and things like that. And a friend of mine who actually works for J.P. Morgan, Sam Canary, he said to me, Sarah, it seems like you're involved in a lot of projects. You got to learn at some point that if you say yes to everything, your yeses will start to mean no. And I was like, oh my goodness, but it's the best advice. And now I have to pick and choose really carefully and think, am I going to be able to give my whole self to whatever I'm saying yes to? What made you say yes to this particular organization? Did you have some sort of personal connection or a good experience with their team? I said yes to Edward Street because I believe in the mission of what they do. I think that education in this country is not equitable for all people. And so for me, being a person of color in this country felt like it was an opportunity for me to be a part of the change and try to figure out a way that we have efficacy in education. Absolutely. And it's a direct line, right? right? Like it's not some it's not like an ambiguous outside thing. It's like this is exactly what we're doing. Right. Um and that's a great way to a great way to advocate and to be a part of the community. Yes. So I was so fascinated to see that you're a whitewater canoe instructor and you love to travel, but I was hoping that you could share an anecdote about one of these adventures that really shaped your character. <laughs> Let's see. I What comes to mind is uh, when I did whitewater canoeing, I haven't done it for a while. Um, we had to, when I was getting qualified, we were canoeing down the Rio Grande in Texas. And our instructors kept telling us through the training process that we were going to come to this point where we were going to have to navigate this section of river that was like class three, class four rapids. And the path that we took through the river had like trees and obstacles. And so it required you to be like one heartbeat with your partner. And you really had to communicate because if you did not communicate properly, the outcome could be detrimental. 
And so, you know, we're young. We're all like, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. So we work up. It's like two weeks. It's finally we're at this point in the river and we have to navigate through it. And they had trained us with these weird exercises during that period to do like, you know, you're paddling and they're saying, no, face in the water, face in the water. You got to get lower. You got to get lower. And we're like, I can't get any lower. I'm I'm kissing the water, right? Like my face is in the water. And they're like, no, seriously, when your partner tells you face to the water, you can't like hesitate. You have to do what they tell you. So we get to this part of the river and I'll never forget it. We're at the top of the chute. And so we could only go through one boat at a time. So that got our attention because we're like, okay, usually one person starts, you can see them and then you go and you, you know, well, this time they're like, no, somebody's at top, somebody's at the bottom will tell you when you can come through because they have to get through. So, you know, you build it up and we're navigating the river and it's our turn to go. And I mean, you can communicate what the path looks like but once you're in it you're like this is so much worse than what they told us (laughs) and so literally you're doing 90 degree turns there's trees and you are like okay i need you to paddle right left and you make it to the end and you're like oh my goodness because you turn around and you look and you're thinking oh my god we made it so everything that they taught us it it helped me to to learn that you plan for things, you execute, you can have the best skill set in the world. It doesn't ensure that you're going to be able to execute whatever is put in front of you. But if you have to depend on someone else, that you have to be abundantly clear what the expectation is of that individual And that by taking risk, sometimes the outcome is so much better than what you could ever anticipate. And so as a result of that experience, I take risk. Yeah, there's some scariness to it. However, if you execute well, if you ask for help, when necessary, that when you get to the other side of it, oftentimes it's one of the most joyful, rewarding experiences that you can ever have in life. And so when we finished, everyone came through and the instructors gathered us all around and they said, what you need to know is, and what we didn't tell you is every year, multiple people die in this section of the river. And we were like, wow. Had they told us that before we started, some of us would not have been successful. But having navigated through it and then walked through it afterwards, you could see how that could be the outcome. Wow. But it was, it was amazing. And so I, when I get afraid of something or think, should I do that? Yeah, I should do that. I have the skill set. I've prepared for that. I can ask somebody for help if I get stuck or need assistance navigating it. And, you know, what do I have to lose? Because if I make it through it, I get to celebrate. 
That's such a camp girl thing, too. <laughs> and, like, thinking back, when I did work, I worked at a summer camp for a long time that was for at-risk kids from Worcester, and I went when I was a kid, and then I went on to work there. And in our trainings, they would always say, people crave experiences. Like, that's why kids do drugs super young, because they want this new, exciting experience. And every week that you get a new group of kids, we want you to jam pack every moment filled with experiences, like as weird or funny or crazy as as you can think. And that's gonna stick with them, that they can have that feeling, that rush of an experience uh, from something else, something other than a substance, or there are positive risks to take. And it sounds like (laughs) that was a lasting one. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. I also, I remember you um, collect, is it Mickey Mouse? I collect (laughs) Mickey Mouse memorabilia, and I saw that you were going to ask me that, and I thought, wow, why do you collect it? And I guess, as a child, I started going to Disneyland, and I remember that the characters at first... I'd run. Apparently, my grandmother said you would run away. You would see them and you would just go screaming like, oh, get away from me. You didn't understand those were people inside of there. And for some reason, of all the characters, I liked Mickey Mouse. And then as I got older, sort of Mickey Mouse sort of followed a theme you know, graduation from high school, graduation from college, my invitations and announcements had Mickey on them. And I, you know, when I think back on why it is I like a animated mouse, because, you know, I'm adult, it makes no sense. But I think for me, Mickey represents folly, innocence, joy. Absolutely. So things that I would love to see always in the world and around me, when I look at that character, it brings that forefront in my mind. I think that's universal, too. I think that part of it is like by having Mickey as part of your invitations and like as part of your like outward life, it it says that to people, right? Like I think people interpret it that way. They see Mickey and they see joy, innocence. Like I think that's a, a... it's like almost like a signifier like I like to you know have fun and be a good friend I feel like there's lots there's lots of Mickey's multifaceted (laughs) have you seen the mural on the palladium it's the artist OG slick but he paints we you're supposed to call them OG slick hands not Mickey Mouse hands because I guess there's some copyright that okay yep I'm sure (laughs) but he's painting it's like Mickey is painting a smiley face for Worcester on the back of the palladium you'll have have to to check it out out. Mm -hmm. oh actually I I'll have to go check it out I'm thinking of the smiley face that's on the other on some building that way. Mm-hmm. I love collections though because I really do think you can learn a lot about people. And I taught eighth grade English for a long time, and we would read this book called Jeremy Fink and the Meaning of Life, and he would collect rocks <laughs> or, and um, misshapen candy, and mm-hmm. there are all these life lessons. So I said one year I'm going to have my students collect something for a full year, and I called it the year long project. And they did it all year long. And the one that really stuck out to me was a girl who collected snowballs from every snowstorm and kept them in her freezer in these little plastic bags and labeled them with the date. And I just thought it was so brilliant. I don't know. I love that. I accidentally started collecting magazines 
when I was in high school, I liked to I liked to read magazines because it wasn't like not everything was on the internet like it is now, or like you know it probably was, but it wasn't as easily accessible. And I would get them for flights or for trips or for whatever. And then I would also like to you know cut put stuff on my walls. Yeah. But I have like I have issues of magazines back to like 2006, and now I still and like I have like piles, and they're not like they don't like take up a whole room, but I have. Okay. All of these magazines, and now I just I like to look at them as like from whatever the time is, right? And like you can flip through; it's almost like a, a time capsule. It's a little time yeah. capsule, yeah. Right. So That's I cool. I saw that you worked in Texas for a decade, right? Are, where are you from originally? Well, I was born in North Texas. I grew up in Southern New Hampshire, and have lived in Eastern Mass, New York City, now Central Mass. Thanks. Yeah. So what do you miss about living in Texas, we'll say, because that's the farthest away. <laughs> or maybe New York, too. <laughs> what do I miss about Texas? Not much. But um, <laughs> I miss the fact that it's in closer proximity to my mom, my brother, and my nephew. Um, other than that, not much. And what was the big city like? How long were you in New York? I was in New York for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely love everything that that city represents. I love the diversity. I love the smells. I love the energy that the city has in it. I went to college in New York, and I try to get back a few times a year. But I love Worcester, too. It's my hometown, and you only get one of those, so it's really important to be proud (laughs) of it, I always say. Um, What do you like about Central Mass? I like the fact that it's actually growing on me. I was not sure having lived in Boston for so many years, you know, it's like that city, right? Um, What I like about Worcester is that it is becoming home to me. Um, I'm pleasantly surprised. You know, I was kind of skeptical in the beginning, Um, but I like that it's a growing city. I love that it's going through this sort of renaissance. Um, I like the fact that people that are from here are proud to be from here. You know, you don't see that everywhere. But people from Central Mass are proud to be from Central Mass, which you Boston people don't have the same pride that I see people have in Central Mass. And they're sort of a caring about one another. I can't explain it, but it's it's unique of all the places I've ever lived. I've never seen a community like this. I know. (laughs) I love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't pinpoint what it is yet, but there's something unique about it. I definitely find that um, in Worcester, that sort of like I don't, you're right, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's... Small town. Right, it is, it's a small town city, almost, and it is, and I think because it's going through all these, like, these growing pains, people are just like, let's, we're all going together, like... I just hope it it retains that uniqueness as it changes into whatever it's becoming, you know? Yeah, and I think that that's something that we're also very aware of, like, I think people are saying, you know, we want all these, you know, cool developments and new things, but we also want to stay the same. And I think people have been very vocal about that, which is nice. It's got to keep its characteristics. Yeah. 
This is the anniversary of Robert Robert Goddard's launch of the first yes. modern rocket in Central Mass, and we interviewed the proprietors from Page Boy Hair Salon recently, and they said. We want some sort of slogan for Worcester that has to do with like space, and they said keep Worcester spacey, kind of like keep Austin weird. weird. Yeah. I was gonna say keep Austin weird. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Mm-hmm. It's our new theme. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having us. This has been a delightful conversation. Yes, I have one question before we go. Sure. Do you have a favorite Girl Scout cookie? <laughs> <laughs> I had to know. Honestly, well, I have not eaten a Girl Scout cookie since probably two thousand three. Um, but my favorite cookie is the Samoa. Mine too. Me too. <laughs> oh, good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, it's like they put all these magical things together and it came out in a perfect little cookie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was always my favorite growing up too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so thank much. You. I appreciate you asking me to be a part of your podcast careful what you wish for right now (laughs) Uh, monica can we come back (laughs) sure (laughs) well i have been sarah i have been molly and you've been listening to pop it see ya mass foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person when asking yourself where to eat tonight turn to massfoodies.com to see what's happening in the massachusetts food scene that's massfoodies.com